0: Of the RKO General family of stations whose principles and practices assure you of responsible and informative broadcasting in the public interest. Correct Eastern Daylight Saving Time is now 15 minutes past 10 o'clock. <laughs>
1: Shepard, mysterious character who aids the forces of law and order, is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. As Shepard, Cranston is gifted with strange hypnotic powers, enabling him to cloud men's minds. Cranston's friend and constant companion and continual producer, the lovely Lee Brown, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the mysterious shepherd belongs. <laughs> the weed of Whoopee bears bitter fruit. Whoopee does not pay. Shepherd knows.
0: <laughs>
1: now you know, gang. Now you know why every night I cloud your mind so sinister and so, so sneakily. Yes, the secret powers to which I have been given by a visitor from another planet has enabled me to hold you hypnotically night after night, to cloud your reason, to defog, to continually becloud your mind so that you don't know which end is up. Strangely enough, the mysterious shepherd is sent to you night after night as a public service by this station. Uh, uh, where's my uh kazoo here? <coughs> <coughs> would you, uh, Carney, would you please give me some delicate, fragile, mid-Victorian music of an English stripe, please? We have selected tonight from the works of Elgar, a proper Victorian of awesome dimensions and English to the veritable core. We have selected the music tonight of Elgar to begin tonight's salute to the indomitable British and the strange kingdom that they inhabit. No, it is no fluke of literary nature that Lewis Carroll was an Englishman and he wrote about a world of fantasy the likes of which few of us seldom glimpse it is no fluke that Jonathan Swift was English and he too wrote about a world of which few of us know they were English and they knew something we didn't know and that uh, would you please reset that corny I may need it a little bit later on uh, I uh, came across a description of Queen Victoria's coronation that was written by a contemporary who was there. And, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, people have been... uh, people have have thought about that period in England. Uh, They thought about the English. And I don't think the English ever made any more of an imprint upon the world than they did at the time of Victoria's reign, which was in the 19th century. I think every nation has its century and at least in modern history. And that century is the century during which time they influenced the world more than any other century, before or since. Uh, I would say that the French century was probably the 18th century. This was the French time, and they influenced the world mightily. However, in the 19th century, this was when England really came to flower. This was when all things English began to uh, affect everything in the world completely. All the way down. Well, the English were very active before that time, of course. But this was their time. And, uh, in fact, the, the literary outpourings of England at that period uh, still today remain a kind of, a, well, like a, a kind of a bulwark of... of uh, English and Western literature not only just English but Western literature HG Wells Lewis Carroll uh, this this uh, you know this is uh, right there Lear uh, is a classic example of that time. Charles Dickens these were all Victorians and they lived in this strange uh, surrealistic world of even Jack the Ripper he made his <laughs> he made his imprint. The world. He was a Victorian, you know, uh, and 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 what what was it the, uh, that was in the Victorian world? Well, the Victorian world was a, was was really a a world. Now, this is the show is not going to be about the Victorian world. It's going to be about really that wild difference that exists between official attitudes and the way things really are. Which uh, is now, I think, this is our century. I think uh, the 20th century is America's century. And uh, everything all over the world is influenced by things American. And, And America, of course, is like England was in the 19th century. Like all great countries during their century, the fantastic dichotomy between the power and the influence they wield and the reality of what they are. And so all over the world, there are millions and millions of people who think of America as this place where everything is clean and beautiful, where uh, everyone has beautiful cars. Oh, yeah, they do. You'd be surprised at the number of people. You've seen that, Corny. even The number of people, since you come from outside continental America, you know that there are millions of people who believe this, who, who believe that everything in America is, the comfort in America is just fantastic, and that everything is air-conditioned, just beautiful. It's like Oz. And suddenly, they're faced with the reality of Sixth Avenue. Knee-deep in cigar butts, knee-deep in old beer cans and drunks sleeping in the doorway, you know, with, a, with their empty bottle of sneaky peep beside them, this side they never get. You know, and it never occurs to them that it's there. And the great gulf between what people think is and the great, and the, and the great reality that is produces literature. It really does. And, and it, it not only does it produce literature, it produces all kinds of... produces fantastic artistic ferment. And somebody sent me along this magnificent description of the coronation. Now, what could be more official in England than the coronation of a king? The coronation of the titular ruler of this fantastic... And at that time, the empire, the sun never set on at the time that Queen Victoria. Can you, can you imagine what Queen Victoria's coronation must have been like? Well, here is an eyewitness account of Queen Victoria's coronation. Would you please give me a little Elgar, please? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Those were days of formal gardens those were days of magnificent costumes. It was a day of solidity, stability. When every class knew its exact place in the nature of things. When a duke was a duke, a lord was a lord, and an abbot was an abbot, indeed. And a queen was a queen. Now let me tell you, a king was a king. Those were the days Of the magnificent structure. Pray! Pray tell me what I'm to do! She had implored Lord John Tyne, the sub dean, at one point. Pray tell me what I'm to do, for they don't know. The Bishop of Durham, who stood near the Queen, could not help her, for he himself was quite lost in the confusion. Before the crowning, he and his colleagues began the litany too soon. And near the end of the service, the Bishop of Bath and Wells had turned over two pages at once. The entire course had collapsed in confusion. He did not notice his error. Told Her Majesty that the service was finished and had to then fetch her back from St. Edward's Chapel whither she had retired long before the coronation was over. She was shocked to find that in this chapel, quote, what was called an altar was covered with sandwiches, bottles of wine, and all sorts of evidences of debauchery. Melbourne was so tired by carrying the enormously hoard, the enormously heavy sword of state, that he itself helped himself to several glasses of wine. According to Disraeli, who was among the commons, Melbourne held the sword like a butcher, looking singularly uncouth, vaguely drunk, with his robes under his feet, and his coronet tilted over his nose. Lord Ward, added this commentator, was seen after the ceremony with robes disordered, coronet cockeyed, drinking champagne out of a pewter pot. Would you please bring me a little Elgar there to set the scene once again? Somehow the idea of Lord Ward cockeyed with his coronet hanging down over one eye, his robes askew, drinking wine out of a pewter ceremonial pot and hiccuping loudly to himself gives one an indication really of what it was actually like instead of what they wrote that it was like. (laughs) The Archbishop of Canterbury crushed the ruby ring onto her fourth finger not noticing that it had inadvertently been made to fit the fifth. He struggled and struggled until finally he crushed it out of the fourth finger. She got it off again with great pain and only after bathing it in ice water. The archbishop tried to give her the orb after she had already got it and, as usual, was so confused and puzzled and knew nothing and finally went away. The archbishop of Canterbury is a stumbler nor was my coronation distinguished by today's decorous behavior. Medals were scattered broadcast, peers wrestling with generals on the floor of the abbey. Melbourne, afterward, inquired of me, the queen, whether it was true that two of her train bearers had chatted throughout the entire service about a totally irrelevant matter, and if so, did I hear them? Of course I heard them. One could have heard them in the last rows of the gallery. Victoria recorded her answer in her journal with some asperity. I did indeed hear them. And I continue to hear them. they're outside in my room right now, chattering about these obscene matters. And here goes, again, a description of the coronation itself. Did you ever see pictures of Queen Elizabeth's coronation? Well, listen what really happened. Any unusual incident provoked stormy applause in the galleries. <laughs> throughout the abbey for example during the homage now there is nothing more important in a coronation than the homage this is when symbolically the entire realm pays homage to its new ruler in the great line of succession this is almost the equivalent of during the uh... all oh, the uh... the institution of a new president during the inauguration when uh, the president is reading, you know, he's reading the, uh, uh, the pledge to take office. This is a solemn moment in the coronation, when the whole realm symbolically pays homage to this great leader. During the homage, Lord Roll, nearly 90, caught his foot in his robes on the steps of the throne and rolled all the way to the bottom. As he struggled to his feet and prepared again to make the perilous ascent, frantic cheering broke out throughout the entire abbey. <laughs> it became a perfect tornado when the queen, anxiously whispering, may I not get up and meet him? He's an awfully old man. leaned down and saved him the risk of another roll. His name, of course. That it was Lord Roll who took the toss delighted everybody. Now, I'm, I'm reading a contemporary account who was very irritated about it. Foreigners were assured that it was part of the ceremony to demand the, a queen's courteous uh, it demand a roll from the noble family in addition to their homage. Disraeli saw the queen's courteous action and praised her delicate sentiment. Greville acclaimed her as the most unaffected queen in the world. A lady from the country, however, turned to her neighbor and loudly said in the stand, remarked how nice it must be to be a queen. You and I might save a dozen old men from a tumble, but no one would cheer us. Look at that old hussy down there. The queen, of course, heard it. <laughs> But apart from aching feet, Queen Victoria remained somewhat fresh. The crown had weighed her down cruelly, so had the strange round object they handed her, the orb. At which point, when she was handed the orb, the Queen said, What am I to do with it? <clears throat> Brack, your majesty is to carry it, in, sir, if you so please. Am I? It's very heavy. What do you do with it, she asked. Again, this was heard in the gallery, which replied by an enormous storm of applause. <laughs> Bring this on again. <laughs> and you know, whenever Hollywood makes movies of queens and so on, they they always completely ignore that side of it. The idea of Queen Victoria. They give her the orbs. What am I supposed to do with this? And an enormous crowd up in the gallery applauding when she says that. You could not conceivably write a more satirical scene than that that actually occurred. You know, this this is the basis of it, I guess. Uh, I read this thing and I thought, what a fantastic scene that must have been. And here was a guy writing it down as it happened. This is an eyewitness report of the coronation of the queen. Now, it's very funny when you read it did the guy who wrote it know that he was writing something funny did he recognize it as satire no he just recorded what and that is the essence of true satire you know many many kids will write to me and they'll say shepherd uh, i'm interested in humor as a as a form of expression and a, and as a budding writer can you give me any tips well kid the only tip i can give you is report exactly what you see That will be humor. I mean, seriously, really, I'm not being facetious. I'm being actually truthful and honest about it. Report what you see. Don't exaggerate it. Not at all. You notice this writer did not exaggerate what the Queen said. What am I to do with it? (laughs) That's all she said. And then he went on and said a storm of applause greeted this remark. Well, there it is. Report what you see. And so as I walk along sixth Avenue, knee deep in cigar butts, I report what I see. A bum in the doorway of Tiffany the other night, for example. He is lounging he is he's is slumped down on fifty seventh Street, in of all places the doorway of Tiffany's. And he's got this this bottle, you know the bottle they always carry in the bag. You notice that little nicety that bums somehow have an urge to cover up their bumdom by carrying the bottle of sneaky peat in a bag as if you don't know what it is that he's drinking out of you does he give you the does he does he want to think that you, he's eating grapes out of a bag or something like that and so here's this crumpled bag lying beside him and you could smell this green wine you know just filled the whole doorway and he just slumped down and right next to him there were three ladies looking in at this magnificent carved crystal object which was of a swan. It was the opening of the ballet and the the theater and the opera season, you know, and so they had this symbolic cut crystal swan that must have cost at least $190,000. It was lit with blue lights, and these ladies were all standing there, very proper ladies on 57th Street, obviously Lincoln Center fans, and they're standing, of course, you can just see their worship of Lenny Bernstein squeaking out of them, and next to them is his bum. And he sees him, see. He sees these three ladies. And he's trying to get to his feet. And he finally gets to his feet and he staggers over to him. You know, it's like he's swimming underwater. And you can see he's trailing these fantastic clouds of sne- sneaky peat gas. You know, <laughs> he's just trailing them. And he goes, oh, 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 could you could you help a guy get to, I, I want to buy a subway token. I want to get to Queens. I... He's putting the arm on him. And he's pretending, of course, that what he wants to do is take a subway to Queens for God knows what reason. He wants to... <laughs> and one lady says to the other, she says, Oh, the poor man must get to Queens. Uh, do you have a subway token? And Marge, who was the lady she was talking to, reaches into her purse and she says, Yes, of course I am. And you could see the glaze come over this guy's eye. They were going to give him a subway token. That ain't exactly what he wanted. <laughs> And all of this took place in front of Tiffany's. Now, I was there. I saw it. So the, the essence of humor is to report exactly what you see. And uh, speaking of unconscious humor, this is WOR in New York. Hit the button, please, Cornelius.
0: beer Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer. Sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Miller Highlight. century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal-clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. Miller High Life of bottled beer.
1: Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. ch <laughs> ch Somehow, uh, who do you think would play Lord Ward in the movie of the coronation of Queen Victoria? He's the one that was described as having his coronet cockeyed, drinking champagne out of a pewter pot, his robes flying in front of him. You know, I, I remember talking about that great dichotomy. this is really the essence of humor. You must always remember that it's only funny. It's funny only because it's placed in the context of a coronation. It becomes funny because here you have this fantastic structure on one hand and you have Lord Ward on the other hand with his coronet cockeyed drinking out of a pewter pot. Now what is funny about the scene of the bum is not the fact that there is a bum or that he's putting the arm on three ladies but it was done in front of Tiffany, and uh, these ladies were looking at a swan that was carved out of crystal. Now, God only knows what their relationship... I've often wondered what nice ladies, and and the world is full of nice ladies. I continually getting letters from, Dear Mr. Shepherd, it's difficult to believe that the things that you describe actually happen. My Husband, Charles, and I have been to New York City many times, and we have not seen. I, I I want. It must be wonderful to be, the nice old lady type. Now, old ladies, nice old ladies. Now I'm using that as a generic term, Corney. They can be any sex, and any age. I'm not using it to describe because many old ladies are not nice old ladies. They're human beings who see what it's all about. More of them are those than the other kind. But what I'm talking about is the kind who who just, the world is kind of a nice big cream puff composed of people who are nasty to cats. Their idea of the worst thing that can happen, I saw this person actually dragging that nice little poodle down the street. Well, I went up to him and I gave him a piece of my mind. And that's the only kind of evil they actually ever see. That kind of evil. It's the kind of person who can wander through the world and never see the slums of Bombay. And, you know, and they really are that way. Uh, and and I've often I've often envied that kind of mind. Really, <laughs> it must be a nice, great, peaceful mind. You know, it must be great to live in a world where you just don't see anything at all. Uh, oh yeah, and. And then, and then that kind of person also has another thing going for them. They often say, well, uh, of course, uh, things are just going from bad to worse. But I, I feel that one day, if things will get back to normal, people will. <laughs> that's that's another, you know, that the things will get back to normal. In other words, the little irritating things that they, they, they're beginning to suspect that things are not exactly the way they think they are. But all of that will clear up one day. And things will become what they think it is somehow magically and uh, this is a this is another nice uh uh thing that i I've, I've uh i've often admired speaking of uh, speaking of that world uh that 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 strange world of of uh of not making contact you know perhaps it's one, uh, this this problem is so vast that there's no real way to attack it uh I saw a critic the other day writing a st- writing, writing a writing a long involved critique of, of why television does not touch on real life. And he went on to talk about the Beverly Hillbillies, which is a fantasy. And he went on to talk about uh, I Love Jeannie, whatever that thing is. And he went on to talk about all these various shows. See that we're all based on fantasies. And he seemed to think that television was perversely not doing this or it was pandering to the taste of the audience in so doing. Well, I I beg to submit, having been around many writers and people who work in the vast entertainment and or slash uh, communications business, that over the past ten years there has developed a great gulf between those people's lives and the lives of the people who are just walking around scratching watching this stuff. The Gulf has gotten so great that there is absolutely no area of mutual communication between them. Now what does this produce? They have to decide then on neutral ground. And so the neutral ground becomes uh, the Beverly Hillbillies which is a a kind of thing that is, 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 is almost like the land of Oz. It has no relationship to a hillbilly or anything else. It's just a lot of funny little shticks. It's like I love Lucy multiplied by a thousand, and that's about the end of it. Now, uh, what, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say, really, that in a sense, the, 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 hardly anything is done deliberately. Hardly anything is done uh, with an attempt to not deal with this subject or not deal with that subject. It's all done unconsciously, in fact, to, to, to such an extent that many of the, the real-life problems that you and I live with uh, just don't exist in the world of the great people who put things on. <laughs> it's just a, and so they don't recognize them at all as problems. Not a bit of it. There's no such thing, uh, uh, no such thing as, a, as a parking problem. Let's take a little simple thing like a parking problem to a guy who comes into new york every day in a chauffeur driven cadillac this is is a you know this is a uh, this is a highly abstract problem Now i'm using a very superficial problem here to illustrate my point but that's how deep it goes even those little problems they would not really quite understand uh... i I wonder yeah and and we continually i think one of the one of the major difficulties in our world today is that we continually elect people to office who come from a world that is totally remote from the kind of life that is lived by 99.9% of the population that they're governing now maybe maybe in america we are getting to the point now where we really believe in aristocracy you know for a long time uh, a large part of the world really believed that certain people by the by the nature of their grace and their be- breeding and uh... their background that they were more fit to govern than the ordinary walking around people this could be roughly called the divine right of kings concept you know the belief the belief being that that uh... that a king is is a special kind of human being well he was he was totally removed from the reality of all the people around which he had to live and and that he was governing and so naturally the great gulf between the palace and the walking around people was unimaginable it was a, a fantastic gulf as in the case of of the day of of queen victoria uh the, the elegance that queen victoria and her people lived in had to be compared with the unimaginable slums of the people that they governed and there were no slums in the world like uh, the slums of london none at all <laughs> and, and so people like Dickens came along and wrote about that world, the slums of London, and uh, it was it was looked first of all it was looked down upon uh, by large numbers of people who thought this was a, you know this was a, a not a fit subject for a writer to write about. That what he should really write about is lords and dukes and queens and and the uh, uh, love romances uh, between uh, princesses and one thing or another. And so when when Dickens began to deal with this kind of reality. Uh, Dickens hit a very sh- sore spot and became really a writer of the people. Uh, he, was, he was read by people, large numbers of people, in magazines they, they read him. You know, Dickens ran in popular magazines and sections. He ran in, in uh, uh, what we would call installments today. But now, now let's take today. More and more Americans are electing people to their office, or various offices. But the patrician today... Is very much in vogue, uh, and and I don't have to go very far back in history. I mean, you all know various, uh, all the way on up to presidents, uh, people who come from fantastic wealth and have lived a totally good life. You know, their their life has been has been the kind of life that kings lived in earlier ages and in different countries. They are equivalent of kings. They they are our equivalent of what you might call the landed gentry and the aristocracy, uh, which really, in a way, is totally uh, diametric to the idea of democracy itself. And so when when a common man becomes president, we we, we distrust him. Again, showing our basic belief, really, in the divine right of kings. Uh, I think one of the reasons why Truman was not liked by large numbers, he was obviously a man of the people, really, genuinely you know he came from a small town in Missouri and he he tried to run a a a haberdashery shop and didn't make it and he was self-educated not really self-educated he paid his way through college and worked all the way on up and so naturally he's not the kind of man you would you would trust primarily because what we really trust is the patrician we trust the king we trust the queen we we trust the Lord and the Duke deep down inside we may think he's evil but we think he has a right to do it which is even more so uh, sinister, you know, very very this gets uh, deeper and deeper into the subconscious about i'd say about the second year that i came to new york this was long before this this uh, trend became such an obvious trend where rich men were always elected to office in almost every given state and you know you know the i i suspect this corny i think that most people would be inclined to think that the reason a rich man gets elected is because a rich man can afford to spend all that money on a campaign. No, not at all. Because most of the money spent on the campaign for a rich man is usually spent by the party that he's running for. He's not spending his own money except in very rare cases. Why does he get selected in the first place? Because the party itself is composed of ordinary people who somehow when a very wealthy man walks into a room there is something a kind of aura immediately happens. You know that thing? When a multimillionaire walks into the room, everybody somehow vaguely feels he's a special human. He must know the secret of life. He must somehow know something that we, the ordinary people, don't know. But let's put it on the other foot. There's a lot of things that we, the ordinary people, do know that he can never know. And that is basic. That is a very basic thing. A very. Have you noticed that that, that when when a... When a, a person in showbiz, I mean, ta- I'm talking about successful showbiz people, really big showbiz people, when they get really big, they rarely refer to their earlier days of struggle and poverty comparative and uh, non-bigness. They rarely refer to those days. Once in a great while, they may refer to them uh, in passing, but only to describe those days as on the way to his present greatness. Now this is one of the, sure, and so they recognize that the public instinctively is drawn to the, what could be called the aristocracy, the kingship. And so uh, an actress uh, will buy a gigantic house overlooking uh, San Fernando Valley. And somehow the idea that at one time she sold, uh, she sold refrigerators at Macy's is rarely mentioned. And if it's, if it is mentioned once in a while, it is only mentioned that she was only there for a short time while she was on her way to becoming a princess. And she was there, uh, sort of, uh, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and so that, that's part of that business, you know, to hide this fact that you were one time a real person. Speaking of real people here, do we have any more? Oh, yes, we've got, uh, got a couple of commercials. We better get them out of the way here for. Is this boring you, by the way? Is this, is this? Because uh, I'm fascinated with the idea of the special person, the king, the star. And I I, I noticed that, that, have you noticed that, that the actors who make it in politics, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Murphy, these are actors who were stars. Uh, uh, yeah, Ronald Reagan did not play secondary little roles. He was a star. I just wonder whether a bit player could make it. You know, who, who somebody say, let's say, could, uh, could, uh, well, let's see, who can we think of who was is, who is a featured type player? Uh, Pangborn. Uh, what was his name? Pangborn was in about 5,000. He's, he, he's, he just recently died. What was his name? All right, uh, any one of, uh, could Eugene Pallet get elected to the presidency? Well, Eugene pallette never was a star. He was always the the little businessman who came in in the second act and told Ronald Reagan, "Hey, hey young fella, nobody's going to marry my daughter unless I know all about him." That was his role. And so nobody's going to elect him. They have to elect the guy that comes in <laughs> and is the star. Now, now this is a fascinating problem. Now, interesting, and we're constantly torn between. Uh, that paradox we want a man who knows about our problems and at the same time we distrust a man who is of us you know the old american expression uh, if you were so smart why aren't you rich that tells it all right there or it tells a great deal of it we imply that a man who gets rich is smart is that true <laughs> is that really true does it take smartness to get rich or does it take shrewdness different things I would suggest you anybody got a dictionary out there look up look up wisdom and then look up uh, shrewd look up the word wisdom and then look up the word shrewd you will note there is a distinct but crucial difference that shrewdness often leads to wealth wisdom rarely does (laughs) it really it really rarely does Uh, it's it's one of those sad things so you so you you've got that You've got the terrible economy constantly battling back and forth, and everywhere you look now you see wealthy men making it and and they seem to be followed around with the same kind of adulation that people in other countries used to give kings and queens you know for uh, Bobby is a great example of this now I'm not making a political comment on Bobby, but I wonder whether Bobby would be as admired totally completely uh the, the fantastic adulation he seems to be getting if he did not come from a, a family that is very wealthy and is a very patrician family. I question this. Now I'm not being anti-Bobby here or pro-Bobby, so don't immediately, immediately I'm going to get you with all kinds of political, uh, I'm just talking about from the sociological and the psychological standpoint. Nothing to do with whether he said anything great or he stands for great things or whatever it is he stands for. I'm wondering whether or not a man who would say and uh, the same things and stand for the same things would get the kind of adulation if he, say, was an ex-grocery clerk who worked his way through law school at nights at CCNY. I'm curious. Just a question. Uh, on the other hand, would, would a man like uh, Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, be as admired as a statesman and as a uh, leader by large numbers of people, if he wasn't Nelson Rockefeller, let's say if his name was uh, Charlie Brown, I wonder. Good question. In this day and it's very difficult to know because, and it's easy for you to make a snap judgment and say, ah, ah, ah blah, blah. no, you have to think very seriously about these things and, and wonder whether or not. Uh, let's take Franklin Roosevelt, the late Roosevelt. Roosevelt obviously came from a patrician family. Would he be as loved? unbelievably loved as he was loved by large numbers of the common people if he hadn't been a very wealthy man with a very obviously patrician way of speaking I hate war. Eleanor hates war. He, he obviously was, was a man see because the people who love the rich I mean the people who love the well the, 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 the well bestowed the the, the the people with graces are generally the lowest class of people. In other words, the people who really love the Queen are the charwomen. You find this true? They really love the Queen. And so, uh, you, you did not find the same kind of love generated over a man like, uh, well, let's take for example, let's get these commercials out of the way. Holy smokes. We've got Mandarin House, boy. And if you're like, lo- speaking of graces and the well-born, if you're looking for something with genuine tradition, we would recommend a visit to the Mandarin House restaurant. Uh, one of the, one of the truly great restaurants in New York. And I'm not saying this as a, as a commercial really, because I've been going down to this place for years. It's down on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the heart of the village. They're open seven days a week and their food is genuine northern Chinese Mandarin food and it's superb. Seven days a week and they have a bar. Uh, Speaking uh, again of traditions, I would like to recommend the Rover 2000 TC, which is an English car of impeccable tradition and superb design. Really great automobile. Uh, You know, you hear about craftsmen, and there are still a few things being made in the world where craftsmen and not just assembly line workers are working. And you'll find that the English Rover is still being made by craftsmen. It's a great car. And if you're thinking of popping for a car that's ten years ahead of its time, or if you'd like to find out about one, drop a card to Rover here at WOR. We'll send off the stuff. And uh, one more note here. We've got Regal uh, Crown, uh, another English magnificent product. By the way, you know, speaking of candy, are you aware that the candy tradition in Europe is, the, is a very different tradition from what it is in America? That candy in America is considered a kid thing? Candy in Europe is an adult hang-up. Oh, believe me. Uh, everywhere you go, there are great candy shops throughout Europe because it's just an adult thing. The sweet is an adult, uh, an adult enjoyment in Europe. And if you're looking for a genuinely adult candy, I would suggest for one thin dime, you buy yourself a roll of Regal Crown Sours. They are really sour. They are angry. And they are magnificent. One thin dime. Regal Crown Sour Grapes. And, oh, yeah, one more thing. Speaking of sour grapes, we will be at the limelight this Saturday from 10.30 until midnight. And, man, if you if you want, uh, I can't describe the scene. Can you, Corny? Down there. If you're looking for an unusual scene in New York, I can only say, man, try to make it. Uh, we're there from 10.30 until midnight. And this particular Saturday, I'm going to do my famous show, which I once did years before, and which almost caused me to be put in jail, of the time that I tried to stuff a turtle after having ten ta- You don't want to hear that? Well, it's a great... it's a great show. It's... it's about... Uh, it's... it's about a Woodcraft Merit badge, and I Well... Well, no, all right, all right, I won't tell that story. I'll tell about the time... Well, why don't you come down and see? The limelight, from 10.30 until midnight, and I'll do it in costume this week. So be ready for big times. And by the way, long live the king. Whatever the king may be. I mean, you know, everybody's got his own particular king, whether it's uh, Bobby or whether it's... uh, whether it's uh, Nelson, whether it's uh, Mr. Harriman. I mean, you pick whatever king you want, you know, go all the way. uh, Maybe you like the other kind of king. Maybe you like uh, Ronald... or uh, George Murphy. Or... Gee, I'm sorry that... that Martin, well, maybe in a couple of years, maybe Branto will run for office. I don't know, on the hip ticket. I don't know, but the, the, everybody's got his own king. I wonder if so many people would love the Beatles if they weren't so rich. You know? <laughs> it's very hard to know, you know? Oh, wow, it's gets all confused. One, one upon the other, you know. Where are we going? Who knows, you know? What was it that the, that the white... Rabbit said to the Queen, no, 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 it was the Queen that said to Alice about the croquet game, uh, well, well, you got to make up your rules as you go along. That's the way the game is played, you know. Uh.
0: This is a recruiting announcement for the Agency for International Development. They're not asking you to do something easy. They want you to go to Vietnam for two years. They want you to come help our massive aid and development program out there. They're teaching medicine, building roads and bridges, helping one million refugees, developing agriculture and self-government. That's what's going on in South Vietnam. And that's why we're there, to prove that freedom works and communism doesn't. The Agency for International Development is the civilian government agency that runs your foreign aid program around the world. And they need people to help. If you're a registered nurse, Or if you have good, sound experience in agriculture, rural administration, government, relief work, education, or civil engineering, call 264-3838. Pay is good, but that probably won't be while you call. 264-3838. Call right now. This is W-O-R-A...